0: Hello everyone, coming up on the Van Maren Show, we're going to talk to the leader of the largest pro-life organization in the United States, and their organization is on track to having saved 14,500 babies. That's coming right up. (laughs) ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the Van Maren show on LifeSiteNews.com. news.com my name is Jonathan van Maren and today I'm going to be talking to Brian Fisher the leader of human coalition human coalition is a, a a phenomenal pro-life organization that I've been I've been following for a long time and Brian Fisher he used to be a business leader he's an author he worked in talk radio and then he decided to take the tactics the strategies the knowledge he had learned in the business business world and join the pro-life movement and to use that knowledge to save babies. And as I mentioned earlier, they've now saved thousands upon thousands of babies and are on track to saving 4,000 this year alone. So without further introduction, this is my conversation with Brian Fisher of The Human Coalition. Well, uh, just, to, just to start off, uh, how did you first get involved in the pro-life movement? I was introduced
1: to the pregnancy center movement back in the late 90s. I worked in Christian radio and uh, one day was introduced to a woman who was doing some voiceover work in the studio. And I asked, is this your full time job? And she said, no, my full time job is the executive director of a pregnancy center. And I said, what's a pregnancy center? And that was actually my introduction. I became involved as a donor and a volunteer, uh, you know, over 20 years ago now. And so that's actually how I first got involved.
0: So what's really interesting about, about what you do now is that you basically started looking at the pro-life movement, realized there was a lot of things that they could be doing a lot better, and then put your skill set to work on how to correct that. So how did you go from being uh, somebody who became familiar with it, was a donor, was involved, to somebody who's now running one of the most successful pro-life organizations in the United States?
1: Well, I'm a business person, uh, so I tend to look at uh, organizations and movements through the lens of measurable successes. So, uh, my degree is in music, but I, I found myself in the financial services industry and was building divisions for a brokerage company up in Pennsylvania. And when you work in the financial services arena, everything's measured, right? Because stocks and bonds and all that stuff, you you make decisions based on performance. And so, I was groomed as a business person to evaluate opportunities, risks, and performance through the lens of measurables. And, you know, the nonprofit space sometimes struggles evaluating itself right. through those lens of of uh, business principles. But, you know, I think Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So we should use every tool, every means, every piece of data possible to be able to inform our work, whether we're in the for-profit world or the nonprofit world. And so when Human Coalition got started now or years ago we just said look if we're not going to measure it we won't do it because we need to be able to make the best use of every donor dollar and validate that our work is having an impact and so you know we've said no to a lot of different things that are cool projects and very interesting but if if we can't actually measure the outcome uh we we do pass on it
0: so when you were looking at at the pro-life movement and then you were looking at uh, what they were doing wrong, what were the things that you identified first and said, I don't like that, that can't be measured, um, and I want to create an organization that does it better? Because it's interesting you said we have to track every donor dollar, and that's true. I, I would actually argue that in some ways, if you run a pro-life organization or are part of a pro-life organization, that we have more of a responsibility uh, to deal very carefully with donor dollars than, say, uh, just a business. Business does because we're taking money people have given us to use to save babies. If we aren't saving babies with it, we're betraying both the babies and the donors.
1: Well, no question. I think the dollars that come into any nonprofit should be treated with exceptional care because somebody is giving up of their own resources basically because they want you to be a proxy to do the work that they can't do. And in the pro life space, you know, our success is typically measured through rescuing children. Um, You know, I think the Pro-life movement has a number of amazing components and has done some fantastic work. I think uh, it is a fractured movement more often than not, which is alarming. And oftentimes, um, sort of thinks, you know, highly of itself when I'm not sure we shouldn't think that yet because we're still aborting a million babies a year and Roe has been legal for you know 46 years. So we have we have a ways to go until we can really pat ourselves in the back. I think the primary first revelation we had back in 2012 was that the pregnancy center movement, which is a venerable movement of pro-life warriors, struggled to reach women who were at risk to abort, primarily because most of the pregnancy centers in the country you know, are volunteer only and have no real budgets to work with. A woman who is high at risk to abort doesn't know that a pregnancy center exists and certainly isn't going to be inclined to visit one, mm-hmm. even if she does because they're not offering her what she thinks she wants, which is an abortion. So when we first stumbled on that fact back in 2011, 2012, we decided that we were going to use high-technology marketing outreach to reach women who are high at risk to abort. And that was probably the first time where we realized there's a disconnect between what the pregnancy center movement is able to do on very limited resources and a gap that we were able to fill by, by specifically reaching and talking to women who were that high at risk to abort category. And that's been the backbone of our work you know, for the last decade.
0: So how did you get from recognizing that most abortion minded women weren't ending up at a CBC to coming up with the solution to get abortion minded women into crisis pregnancy centers?
1: Well, it was just a matter of determining what was the most cost-effective way to reach them. You know, there's 1.85 million internet searches a month in the U.S. for abortion procurement terms. So almost 2 million times a month, somebody goes on to Google and searches for abortion pill, ru forty six, abortion at home with a coat hanger, my condom broke, you know, abortion clinic. Those are all terms that suggest the searcher is looking for of an abortion provider, or certainly information on how to get an abortion. And so, you know, even in the late 2000s, most for profit businesses were using internet ads to reach people. And uh, the pro life movement was not doing a lot of that work. And so to us, it was sort of just a logical gap. Let's go online to where our potential clients are and let's introduce ourselves and invite them to have a conversation with us. We're going to tell them that we don't provide abortions. We're not going to provide you for an abortion. But I think we should have a conversation and make sure you clearly understand options and the value of human life. And that was the gap that we looked to fill. Now, you know, today, Human Coalition is a full service provider, and we own and operate our own clinics, and we have you know a whole suite of services we didn't have back in 2009. But the idea of going a very evangelistic model and reaching women who otherwise would be unreached, uh, for us, was just a matter of technology. How do we use the most common cost-effective tools?
0: Uh, so when did human coalition get started and, and sort of what really made you decide to take that leap and go full time into the pro-life movement? Because it is a leap, especially when you're coming from the business world, uh, to the nonprofit world, there are a lot of, there are a lot of differences. And especially for somebody who was, who was successful prior to this in business, it's, it's quite the personal leap to take.
1: Yes. Uh, that's a story that's hard for me to tell because it doesn't necessarily reflect well on my character, but. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Uh, In 2007, we tested the idea of using internet marketing to reach women who are high at risk to abort. And I moved to Dallas in 2008, I became the COO of a marketing agency here. And I was loving it. It It's a good job, you know, great pay and fine company doing very meaningful work. But uh, God continued to press on me to continue this test of using technology to reaching women at risk to abort. And you know, frankly, I didn't want to uh, I'm a business guy. I like the for-profit world. I like the the kind of the race that exists in the in the for-profit venue and really enjoyed the work I was doing and And I knew at that point there were some four thousand groups, and I figured certainly somebody should be doing this that already has an organization, but God just uh, made me uncomfortable. And so, in late two thousand and nine, I opened up Human coalition. and on june twenty second, two thousand and ten, through the work that we were doing, with a pregnancy center in Pittsburgh, the very first baby was rescued from abortion. And I got a call at about 5, 5.30 that night from the director. And she said, we just want you to know we rescued the very first Human Coalition baby. And uh, I'm not an emotional guy. I'm a sort of a German pragmatist, but I broke down and I cried because you know, not only had God kind of sent it to save me when I was six years old, but here he had used a very grumpy, uh, somewhat incalcit- recalcitrant, person to rescue a human being from death and all I had really done was complain and in that moment it really was an instant I went from a very sour pro-life to a very passionate dedicated pro-life person because I thought my gosh if we just help to rescue one child you know maybe we can rescue two maybe we can rescue 10 maybe we can rescue 20 and you know by God's grace we're approaching 14,500 so you know I I wish I could say like, I was always passionately pro-life and this was a a calling of mine since I was a kid. It it wasn't, God had to basically drag me into it. And I really didn't, I really didn't develop the passion for it. My staff would probably say obsession um, until after that first baby was rescued in 2010.
0: So what were the practical steps you took to get going when you set up human coalition? How did you take the research and turn it into a reality that's now saved almost 14,500 babies? Well, the good
1: news is there was a lot of blueprints already laid. I mean, the for-profit world has been using internet marketing for years, and I already had a background in data management and data analytics. so um, it was a process of just applying uh, advertising and marketing techniques which were already in place. Um, the funding was was challenging. Uh, you know we self-funded for a while, and I had some family and friends that put in some money. but by God's grace, in two thousand and eleven, uh, a Texas family who was looking for a small technology-based pro-life group to sort of incubate, got word of us, and they donated several million dollars for us to fund the first couple years, and that's how we got we got kickstarted. Once we were operational, the data then drove our decisions. We started a, a contact center because the data suggested we should. We began to bring in our own clinics, our own women's clinics, because the data suggested that we should. We started a social work program because the data said we should. Uh, we started a political effort because the data was irrefutable. And, of course, now we've, mer- we've moved into tele-clinics, uh, um, virtual clinics, which the data, again, suggested was a was a logical decision. So, every step has been made based on assessing our past performance and working really hard to determine how we can optimize that performance, quite frankly, so we can get to that next child as fast as possible. The whole organization Is based on speed to next baby. How do we rush to save another child as fast as possible? And the data is our guide on how to do that.
0: So how do you make the decision about which projects to test run to begin with?
1: Well, we have a lot of, you know, they always say hire people smarter than you. And in my case, it's not all that difficult. So we've brought on some really fantastic brains who are, you know, spent a lot of time ideating. So They look at past data and they say, you know, this test worked. This test didn't. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try this script in the call center. Let's try this counseling approach in one of our clinics. You know, let's try this marketing venue or this marketing ad. It's, it's sort of based on Jim Collins book, Good to Great, where he says you have to confront the brutal facts. You have to be willing to look at what works, but you also have to have the courage to look at what doesn't work and be okay with that and use that to kind of find the next solution that might work. And so it's just this constant process of evaluating what's going well and what isn't and being as an organization willing to say, you know, this isn't working, we need to stop it, we need to move into a new area. And so, you know, we rescued 15 babies in 2010. Uh, We rescued 3,217 babies last year, we'll reach over 4,000 this year, and we have some big plans for next year, that growth is really based on, you know, God's providence, obviously, but just this relentless commitment to looking at what's not working and trying something new.
0: So give us a list. What does Human Coalition specifically do now? You mentioned a bunch of a bunch of things. What is on your roster of activities?
1: Well, it all started with the marketing outreach. So we continue to find new ways to reach women who are high at risk to abort. We own and operate a fantastic call center, contact center. They take calls and chats and texts and instant messages from women all day long, uh, thousands and thousands a month now. And then they set appointments at either a pregnancy center that we work with in different parts of the country or at our own network of clinics that we own and operate. Uh, Then we have an extended social work program we call the Continuum of Care, which addresses the long-term needs of women in crisis. Uh, We certainly are committed, first and foremost, to saving a child, but we also want to help that mom move from dependence to independence. Mm -hmm. And so we have a continuum of care program. And then this year, uh, we started a brand new political effort. So we are now engaged in the political realm on policy, on legislation, and on candidates. And then uh, this year, we are accelerating what is a virtual clinic which um, is basically a medical clinic, but all done through technology. And that operates out of our place here in Dallas. So there's five or six major divisions or components to what we do. But at the end of the day, it's a national rescue system, right? It's a, it's a rescue system designed to find women and children who are at risk, bring them into a loving system of care that is, um, makes good decisions based on data and continues to provide um, gospel-centered Outreach and assistance to women so that they choose life, but also so that their lives are are made uh, more abundant
0: So so what kind of policies politically speaking does human coalition focus on on promoting?
1: We have a new organization called human coalition action. It's a 501c4, which is a political organization and we are uh, really about six months into it Um, We started it for a couple different reasons. Human coalition has fantastic donors all over the country that fund our work, but we also specifically went after government dollars. And I know that you know some of your listeners like that, some of them don't. But you know, just to be very transparent, I'm trying to clone Planned Parenthood's funding model and take as much of their money away as possible. Right. So I'd rather we save the babies than you know use our tax dollars to kill babies. So we started securing government grants back in 2016, 2017, but we realized that it wasn't enough just to go ask states for money. We also had to be involved in, in helping craft good legislation per state. So we are primarily focused in North Carolina and Texas on the political effort at the moment because we're super small. And most of the legislative work is here in Texas. And a lot of that has to do with not only your, your very good and standard you know, heartbeat bills and, and that type of work, but also bills that are pro-life that still support um good environments for women at risk. So we might look at poverty bills, we might look at you know homelessness bills, thing drivers of abortion that we can at least opine on and help make a difference on. Most of the legislative work is directly related to how to stop abortions in a state, uh, either through legislative means or through practical means. Um, but we also will touch on, or at least provide counsel on bills that are, that are sort of uh, complementary to our core focus.
0: So, kind of give our listeners or our viewers sort of a breakdown of how um how Human Coalition functions in terms of of the internet driven marketing, uh connecting with abortion minded women and trying to make sure that they end up talking to you or at one of your clinics rather than ending up at Planned Parenthood. So, how does this go, sort of step by step? What, what kind of ads are you running? How are they seeing you? How are they finding you? And how are they going from googling, you know, nearest abortion clinic or whatever search term it is? to speaking with one of your people and ending up keeping their baby?
1: Yeah, it's super simple, only because you and I and your audience, we do this all day long. If, if we want a product or service, we go to Google. If I want a bicycle, I'm going to go to Google and I'm going to type in to the search engine, you know, bicycle or 10 speed. It's going to give me a whole list of ads and a whole list of links that have to do with bicycle providers. So I'll probably get an ad for Walmart or Target, you know, to, to buy a bike. Um, And then I'm going to click on that ad or I'm just going to call the phone number in the ad because I want more information on the bike It works the exact same way. By the way, this is how the abortion industry markets So if a woman in Dallas is searching for an abortion provider, we want to be the first link that she sees which means we need to be very wise and uh, Aggressive about how we market to her through ads and links online. So She might go online, types in abortion clinic, Dallas. If we've done our work properly, the first ad that she'll see, or the first link she'll see will belong to us. And she'll click on the phone number and she'll be immediately connected to our contact center. And we'll continue to build the relationship from there. It's, it's honestly the exact same sort of cycle that you and I go through all the time when we're searching for a product online.
0: Do you know which percentage of women who actually end up talking to one of your people instead of a clinic end up changing their mind and keeping their baby?
1: It differs by market and it differs by location. So, for example, we work in downtown Atlanta, which is a very abortion-dense arena, and um, those are very challenging clients. They are typically poverty-stricken. There's a lot of tension in that area. There's a lot of abuse in that area, and they are under substantial coercion to abort. Our our results will be great, but lower than what, what they might be in you know, Pittsburgh which is a, a more um, upper crust clientele, where a woman is not necessarily facing the economic pressures that she is in Atlanta. So it just depends on the market. Uh, the good news is, is that if you were to look at our charts and graphs by market, each and every year, we're getting better and better at saving those babies. Right. And it just depends on, again, how, how effective we are at testing and optimizing those numbers.
0: So when you uh, when you take a look at at what you've developed and like fourteen thousand five hundred babies in just a, in just a few years is a pretty incredible number. When you look at that, what are some things that that? the abortion industry that Google could do to strike back. So there's a lot of talk about how uh, Google is really optimizing um, abortion-minded sites. I, I, I actually tested this when, I, when the news first broke, that especially they were trying to reduce the amount of pro-life information people were, were getting and upping the amount of pro-abortion uh, information they were getting. Here in Canada, abortion is legal till birth, so I would I would do things like Google that. And instead of getting pro-life articles that, you know, three weeks ago you might have gotten, I was instead getting articles from pro-abortion sites, Planned Parenthood fact sheets, even like CNN analysis of where pro-lifers were lying. Has this affected you guys at all?
1: Uh, no question. Big tech has been uh, after us for, for four or five years. Um, you know, our, my account, I can't advertise on Twitter. So several of our accounts have been censored on Twitter. We had a fantastic prayer app that we use across the country that Apple took down, and we haven't been able to get it back up again. We've had on and off issues with Facebook. Uh, Google, there's no question Google is under some pressure to uh, snuff out conservative or pro-life groups and that they at times will exercise uh, their uh, power in response to that pressure. And we have seen an increase in issues on Google over the past 12 or 18 months. Uh, we are opting to not only continue to, to work with them and to encourage them to uh, exercise the right of free, free speech and uh, to you know have productive discussions with them about how we can all play in the same sandbox um, and do so on even ground. At the same time, continue to be aggressive about investigating lots of other ways that we can reach right. uh, folks that that are potentially at risk. And so that <laughs> has been a fantastic exercise for our marketing team. We have an unbelievable marketing team here. And so I'm I'm quite confident that if Google continues to put pressure on us, we will continue to find creative ways to find women who, who need our services.
0: Right. So when you look at, at the pro-life movement as a whole, and one of the reasons I want to ask this question is because one of the things we've been trying to do. On This podcast is to take a look at the pro-life movement as insiders and outsiders to critique the movement to look at how we can be better um, Because we are a big movement. You're correct. We're also we're also a fractured movement as you mentioned earlier And because we have a responsibility to the babies that we work to save as well as to the, the people who might not be out on the front lines or working full-time like uh, Like myself or yourself at the same time. They expect us to use that money to save babies so besides the The very simple point, um, which at at the organization I work for, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, we really follow as well, which is don't do anything that you can't calculate the results from and always be improving your projects. Never do something one year just because you did it last year and always make sure your projects are improving because almost all of them can improve. When you look at the pro-life movement as a whole, what are some basic critiques and constructive criticisms criticisms that you would give? How can we as a movement in the different wings of the movement be better than we are because of the responsibility that we have to be better?
1: I think the movement has had tremendous success primarily in the political realm, and that's specific to the states, right? We've had no success to speak of at the federal level over the last 46 years, but at the state level, quite a bit of progress has been made Mm -hmm. from a legislative standpoint. So we need to celebrate that. Um, the movement struggles to get funded here in the States, you know, it's a, it's maybe a $700 million a year movement, which sounds like a lot, but it's scattered to 4,000 groups with an average budget of $175,000 a year. Right. So that's a, that's a massive issue. The primary miss of the pro-life movement has been its lack of success at actually educating and mobilizing the Christian church. Okay. The pro-life ethic is founded and grounded in Christianity. You can be pro-life and not be a Christian. I totally understand that. And and we welcome working with with those folks. However, uh, the pro-life ethic is a Christian ethic. And so Christians are the only people group on the planet with the real motivation to end abortion. And yet 0.17% of American giving goes to ending the leading cause of death in America. Now think about that. 17 cents for every $100 that's donated in America goes to ending the leading cause of death in America. Which means that it's a, it's a non-starter, right? It means that America really doesn't care about ending abortion. Well, that's, that's an issue primarily of the life movement, not being able to winsomely, aggressively, candidly educate Christians on why it's the uh, greatest genocide in American history and why it's the greatest moral priority of our generation. Most Christians in America don't understand that. They don't get it. They think it's political. They think it's a football to be thrown between you know congressional offices and they they're not poised to actually do anything meaningful because they've never been taught. Right. So that is a, that is a big challenge for the life movement because if we had been more successful at that, you know, the life movement in America would be a four, five, six billion dollar effort, and, and frankly, we would have made more progress towards ending abortion. You know, you have the Catholic Protestant divide, which kind of pops up every now and then i think both sides have done a good job to try to mitigate that but you know where i think we really struggle is we tend to argue about stuff that isn't material and we make it a big deal Mm -hmm. um you know we we kind of argue around the edges of things you know you have incrementalism versus personhood you have some of these you know issues which i know they're important and i know people get riled up about but at the end of the day you know let's let's work together and get to the goal i know we can argue all day about process and and philosophy and theology, but that wastes a ton of time and um doesn't save babies. So we really need to be strategic to find those areas where we have commonality. We all want to end abortion. So let's start there. You know, John Maxwell's one percent rule. Find on the one percent we agree on and start with that. Uh the life movement tends to to argue about the other ninety nine percent, and right. we would do well to unify around a common message.
0: So to pull on that thread just just, just a little bit more, um, I was wondering what you thought about this. Do you think, A, that one of the reasons that there is so much arguing about the 99% is because there's competition – for donor dollars, of which there is is a limited amount. And that second of all, that one of the reasons the life movement has had a difficult time getting donor dollars is because there are, if we're really blunt, a lot of organizations who promise a lot and then don't deliver a lot, by which I mean like we're going to end abortion, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this. But people aren't blind and they can also see that there are are a number of things completely outside of our control that will contribute to that. Uh, I find that a lot of donors get cynical. Um, when the thing that their promise is going to happen doesn't happen?
1: I'm sure there's some of that. Uh, You know, we have fantastic donors at Human Coalition. I don't personally sense that a whole lot, the cynicism. I think, again, primarily it's a lack of education. Even the modern American Christian donor doesn't understand the moral priority of abortion. And that's something that we educate on all the time. Um, no, I don't think. I, I, there's perceived competition for donor dollars. I don't think that's real. I think right. I think donors love to give, and they're generous, and they want to give to things that work, and they're going to move the needle, and, and donors give. Um, donors won't give to things they don't know about or that they don't understand. And so, again, it gets back to that issue of, uh, of donor education. So I would argue that there really is no competition, really. The competition is really against the abortion industry who controls the media and government and the messaging so it's not you and i it's not other like-minded organizations you know we've we need to do a better job of tearing down the lies and the arguments of the pro-abortion movement because that frankly who's that's who's getting all the money so if we were to focus our energies there i think we'd have a, a much better success rate than just you know arguing with each other over over issues that aren't material
0: so when you look at, at say the next five to ten years uh, what do you see posing the greatest challenge to the pro-life movement aside from donor dollars? Um, we just, we talked about, about Google, and increasing attempts by social media companies to choke off our ability to access people. What do you think some of the primary challenges to the pro-life movement are going to be?
1: I mean, the major answer is always the same, which is the silence of the church. Um, if we had an active vocal church, we would have ended abortion by now. It's actually not that difficult to end abortion. It just takes some, courage that as yet we haven't seen exemplified as much as we need to uh so that silence of the church has has been the greatest enemy to our effort and it continues to be the greatest enemy Uh, i would probably put big tech as second because they have such a loud megaphone and they're controlling the conversation right now that's a a very legitimate issue um and at least here in the states you know we have we have political issues that we got to deal with Um, what you've seen here in the u.s is when trump was elected in 16 is the abortion industry basically threw the gloves off became very aggressive and far more open about their messaging and their intent than they have been for the last 50 years. Well, they only did that because they think it's a winning strategy, which means they think they have enough of the population that agrees with them to mobilize. And, you know, the pro-life movement and the church have, have been caught on their heels by the aggression. You saw it in Virginia, you saw it in New York, you've seen it in other states across the country. You've certainly seen it from the abortion industry itself. And until we kind of deal with the fact that abortion is an evil, it is evil, we are dealing with evil, and evil does not play games. Evil does not uh, negotiate. Evil is evil. Until we kind of come to grips with that and deal with it on its face, um, we'll continue to play from behind. At the same time, you know, love and life win. We have the truth on our side. We have all the tools, not only of the gospel, but of just uh, morality and ethics and philosophy, all of the truthfulness found in, in nature and in education are on our side. Uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't be winning faster. I, I tend to think we are winning, it's just a slower win than perhaps we would like. So if we figure out how to mobilize the Christian church, if we figure out new innovative ways to circumvent big tech, um, I think we have a great shot at getting this thing done in one generation and and leaving a much better situation for our kids and grandkids.
0: When you give me the number of 14,500, which I, was, I, just, I haven't checked Twitter uh, um, in, in a little bit, but I, I keep the updates uh, of Human Coalition going through. And one of the reasons I follow it is just because it's like, you know, Twitter is just a sort of a poisonous hellhole and then you're scrolling through and then every once in a while Human Coalition pops up and it's like, we saved another baby. I'm like, oh, so that happened today. That's, uh, I guess today is not totally terrible. Um, there's got to be some really cool stories uh, behind that number 14,500. Are there any, uh, any stories that jump to mind that you'd want to share?
1: Oh gosh. I mean, the joy of my job is, is the stories. Cause I sit underneath a television that, that live streams every time a baby saved. So <laughs> no people kidding. ask me if I get, oh yeah, they ask me if I get bummed out coming to work because it's such a, you know, vicious space to be in, but the reality is no, because every day I leave and there's 20, 30, 40 more numbers on the board. Um, yeah. I mean, I, one of my favorite stories is actually the uh, the young woman now whose uh, fingerprint is our logo. Uh, one of the very first babies rescued was in uh, Pennsylvania. It was a mom who was a, a single woman who got pregnant and is a, an aggressive, successful businesswoman, but um, you know didn't think she had time for a child. And we were able to connect with her and she came into the pregnancy center and And after, you know, a number of appointments, I mean, a number of appointments, sometimes this takes, you know, five, six, 10, 12, 20 conversations, she decided to choose life for her daughter, Addison. And, um, that, that wonderful girl was born. And a few years ago, the Pittsburgh staff up there surprised me and allowed me to be introduced to Addison and her mom. At the time, Addison was, uh, five. I think she just turned nine. But, um. You know, here I was in, a, in an office looking at this beautiful little five-year-old girl who liked soccer and dancing and was very talkative, highly energetic. You know, you could tell it was a handful for her mom, but at the same time, her mom was rejoicing in the fact that Addison even existed and was um, just overjoyed to even be there. And we asked her if we could use her thumbprint as the logo for Human Coalition. And so every time I look at a business card or a sign around the office, I'm reminded of a courageous mom who made an amazing decision despite a lot of hardship, and the fact that I was able to personally be introduced to uh, to Addison, who you know now is in what fourth, fifth grade, and growing into a fine young lady. And who knows what God's going to do through her life.
0: Yeah, I was uh, I was going to ask you what keeps you going, but I think you've just answered that question.
1: Well, I'm highly competitive. Uh, if you, if you looked at my you know personality profiles and I've done a hundred of those things, they all basically say the same. I'm a high driver, high D and highly competitive. Um, and so I want to win. I, God called me to help end it, not just to say babies, but every baby is a testimony to the grace of God being applied into a family's life and the power of community and unity. And so I look forward to the day when when you and I can sit back and say, you know, by God's grace, we ended abortion in the West, along with all of our brothers and sisters in the movement and figure out what the Lord has for us next. Uh, and that's why I'm here. Uh, I have every intention of, of, of watching that happen before I pass on, if the Lord so wills. And um, I hope we have hundreds of thousands of other people in the West who feel the same way.
0: When people look at the culture, which in in some in some cases feels like it's spiraling out of control, a lot of people have a a far more pessimistic view than you do. So I guess uh, how how would if you if if somebody said to you, there's no way we can end abortion, there's no way that this thing is going to end within our lifetime. um, There's definitely no way we can get it done within a generation. What would your response to that person be?
1: Well, two things. I mean, as Christians, we, we should always be joyful and optimistic. There's no reason why we need to look at the world around us and you know, say, you know, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, we certainly see sin and we certainly see things that not going the direction we'd want to in the West, although I would argue in other parts of the world, it's, it's ascending. I'm, I'm not debating that we're not experiencing moral decline in the West. We most sure. certainly are. At the same time, we already have a several, but one in particular, historical example of how, with just a few godly, courageous people, you can turn an entire civilization on its head. And the example I'm thinking of is William Wilberforce and the ending of slavery in the West. So, when William Wilberforce came on the scene in Britain, you know, slavery was a 5,000 year fully entrenched institution, and in one lifetime, one lifetime, one 40 year period, one guy. And his band of brothers and sisters who worked tirelessly not only made slavery unthinkable, but they made it illegal. And so abortion has never been settled. It hasn't been around legally for 5,000 years. We're not facing the same sort of uh, entropy that Wilberforce was. And yet he was able to get something done in one lifetime that I think is more extraordinary socially and morally speaking, well, socially speaking, than ending abortion. So why, why shouldn't we take his approach? He had a youthful optimism until the day he died. He understood that God was in control, but he also understood that we have an obligation to be representatives of the kingdom on earth. And uh, he was he was relentless and he got it done. So I look at Wilberforce and I say, gosh, if one man can lead the charge to end slavery in the West, why can't uh, uh, thousands of people in the West lead the charge and get abortion ended? And I, I have every reason to believe that we're going to do it.
0: Final two-part question, uh, what's next for Human Coalition, and then where can our listeners and our viewers find your work?
1: Well, the first one, e- the second one's easier. Uh, you can find us at humancoalition.org. If you're interested in the national rescue system for babies, that's humancoalition.org. If you're politically minded, you can go to hucoaction.org, hucoaction.org. Uh, we are, next year, uh, going to be turning our attention to a couple more areas that we haven't done a lot in, and that is media and education. Um, Those are areas that uh, we just not had the time to work on. We've primarily been working on rescuing babies and now getting involved politically. But the time has come for us to uh, begin to be more aggressive on social media, digital media, probably some terrestrial pieces. And so my role is changing somewhat. I'll be a little bit more upfront than I've been in the past 10 years and uh, along with several other folks. We feel it's a good time for Human Coalition as the largest pro-life organization in America to step out and begin to deliver that message of hope, optimism, courage, um, education, and to begin to join with some other fantastic groups to, uh, to mobilize Christians and other like-minded people across the country. So 2020 will probably be the year where human coalition sort of has its coming out party. Okay. And, uh, I'm looking forward to that happening.
0: Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with us.
1: Hey, thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be with you again.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Brian Fisher of The Human Coalition. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past episodes, head over to lifesightnews.com. We're on YouTube where you can subscribe. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Thanks so much again for tuning in this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.